of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in our series, A Year of Polygamy, where we seek to try to understand the practice of plural marriage as it was practiced in our past and as it's practiced today. And I'm excited to have a guest, a guest expert on the podcast. This is someone returning for more, so I'm glad to, I always like having guests that come on and return again. That means that they're not completely uh, soured with us yet. <laughs> so welcome, Russell Stevenson. Good to be here. It's a pleasure every time, Lindsay. There has not been a time where I've not enjoyed being on FMH. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Russell has a blog and a podcast. Um, do you want to give us the URL so I don't mess it up? Yes. Um, the, uh, the blog slash podcast, it, it serves as both, is www.mormonhistoryguy.com. And uh, we recently posted... Uh, an interview I conducted with Alex Beam, who wrote a book about the the assassination of Joseph Smith, and it's gotten a lot of press coverage. And you know, he's spent the past few days here in Utah uh, publicizing his book. It's it's a very engaging read. It it does, in fact, read like a novel. Good, I'm excited to check that out. Yeah, and t- tonight we've had Russell on in the past. He's written a book about Elijah Abel's, and you've recently published another book, right? Well, I haven't published it yet, but it is on the cusp of publication. Okay. It is a global history of blacks and Mormonism. It's called uh, For the Cause of Righteousness, and Greg Coford Books will be publishing that. Perfect. Yeah, so so maybe we can come on, you can come on later and talk about that. But you did do the history of pornography with us as well, and that was a popular episode. Yes, and that it's it's been an interesting topic for me to even study. I, I was considering publishing an article on it, and uh, one thing I found, I, I was just impressed with the consistency with which the the church has has uh, approached the issue of pornography. Um, so yeah, that was uh, uh, an interesting episode for me as well. Well, tonight we're going to talk about another interesting topic. I I'm really excited to talk about this topic. The reason why we we're doing this in a year of polygamy is because this is this is a taboo topic. We're going to talk about interracial marriage in early Mormon history. And, uh, of course, everybody always likes to throw out the Brigham Young quote. Well, there are several quotes about death on the spot if, you know, um, a black person marries a white person. And that was a quite a common belief system that you, you know, if you had a baby, it would turn into, what is it, like a mule? Is that yes. The? Yes. And we're going to talk all about that. So I wanted to talk about that because I think when we're understanding plural marriage, we have to also understand some of the other interesting taboos that were going on. We're going to talk about the Indian Lamanite marriages. There, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that Joseph tried to encourage um, men for a time to take Lamanite wives as concubines. And so we're going to talk about all those, those interesting things tonight. So I think I'm going to let Russell just get into it. He's done a lot of work in his book about Elijah Abels, he has written about a name that you might not know of. And I'm going to tell you this name, and this is someone you should probably study, and they can pick up your book to read more about this, right? Yes. Um, this is William McCary, and 
you were just telling me before we got on that he is, what did you say? He's as important a character to understand the priesthood ban, you think? Yeah, if you, if a person wants to understand the priesthood restriction, they can't do it without understanding who William McCary is and the impact that he had on the Latter-day Saint community. It's just impossible. Tell us. Tell us who is this guy. All right, so, you know, a little bit of background. Um, William McCary was a biracial, so, you know, half-black, half-white, runaway slave from the South. And he was also incredibly talented. He was a fantastic musician. Um, he was the kind of person who could, you know, make a tune uh, out of, you know, anything that was around him. And towards, you know, the mid-1840s, late-1840s, um, he became connected with the Latter-day Saint community in Nauvoo. Now, What's interesting about this is he had the kind of skin complexion to where he didn't necessarily look black. He was certainly what you'd call swarthy. He was he was dark complected, but his skin tone was such to where you could either consider him to be a uh, you know an African American or you could consider him to be a Native American. And as such, he often he often took on the identity of a Native American because frankly. Uh, Life was a little bit better for you as a Native American in antebellum America than as an African American. Not much, but you know, at the very least, you know, you, you know, you weren't automatically assumed to be a to be a runaway slave or or a slave. Yeah, what so, I was reading about him is he kind of co-opted whatever identity was the most convenient at the time, and that would be any racial identity that he could get away with, right? Exactly, exactly. It was all, you know, it was a complex system that he was navigating. And uh, given, you know, his um, you know, his characteristics, he said, listen, I can work this to my benefit. You know, if it's better for me to be black, I'll be black. If it's better for me to be something else, be something else. And generally, um, it was better for him to be a Native American, um, or at least to claim that. So in 1846, he, uh, you know, comes in contact with the Mormon community, and the records that we have indicate that they all welcomed him as a Lamanite. Uh, they, you know, they, were, they they saw him as you know part of you know this this chosen population. That's what's so interesting about being a Lamanite in uh, in Mormon society at this time is while you were considered to be cursed and kind of depraved and backward looking, at the same time that came with a you know a, a certain sense of, of promise. You know, your average white Mormon would will look at you and say, "Oh, isn't it so sad that you've fallen so far from your potential?" Uh, but they still believed there was a certain kind of potential that they would, you know, someday blossom as the rose. And, you know, after all, the Book of Mormon is directed towards them. Uh, so, you know, being a layman, I did come with a, a certain amount of uh, – prestige is the wrong word, but a certain amount of notoriety, you know, within the, uh, within the Mormon community. And uh, initially, this is how William McCary uh, was received. Now, it, it should be noted that, you know, he – you know, he went by a number of different names over the course of his life. At this point in time, he went by William McCary, but later on, he'd go by the the um, Indian name of Okatabi. He also went by Warner McCary, and uh, he went by a number of other names as well. I'm going to use the name William McCary. So he's baptized he's by Orson Hyde, right? By Orson Hyde, and he's also ordained to the priesthood by Orson Hyde, which makes you know William McCary one of a, a handful of of blacks who held the priesthood before the priesthood restriction was implemented. Now, can I read a quote from your book? Yes. Yes, Okay, please. so this says, 
In February 1846, Orson Hyde baptized a free black named William McCary in Nauvoo and married him to Lucy Stanton, daughter of Daniel Stanton, formerly a high counselor in Davis County, Missouri, and stake president in Quincy, Illinois. Later reports from an RLDS Oregon indicate that there was a great parade welcoming him as a Lamanite prophet. Can you tell me what that means? Tell me about the Lamanite prophet rumor. So one thing that uh, that William McCary billed himself as was being something of a visionary. And this is something that he would uh, do over the course of 1846 and 1847. And, you know, it, he... He often assumed other identities. You know, he he often assumed the identity of Adam. He said, "I'm speaking as the, the voice of Adam." And at times, he even assumed the identity of of Jesus Christ. While dressed as an Indian, right? So, yeah, I have a quote that says he proclaimed himself to be Jesus Christ while wearing Indian garb. He displayed scars and wounds received on the cross and took credit for causing the whirlwind which destroyed his Mississippi hometown in 1840. Yes, and th- these are the kinds of things that he said to the Mormon community. And and the fact that he was believed tells you, you know, how receptive uh, they were. And, and you see this you know, crop up again in winter quarters. So he, he meets the Mormons of Nauvoo, and uh, he goes to Cincinnati. And, and while in Cincinnati, he starts up um, his own Mormon community yet again. And... You know, by this point, you know, the Strangites, you know, they, they've been growing in strength. You know, that was a, a sect that developed after the, the death of Joseph Smith uh, by a man named James J. Strang. And they did have a, you know, something of a population in Cincinnati and, and they suffered because of William McCary's growth. You know, he, he siphoned off members from them as well. And the newspaper reports, you know, all, all spoke of his charisma and how he set up this congregation that was uh, divided according to men and women and how all these women were thronging around him. And what's noteworthy too is his wife, Lucy, uh, she had a particular affection uh, for dark skinned uh, preachers. Back when she was living in Kirtland as a young woman, uh, she was identified as being a follower of a, a black preacher by the name of Black Pete. Uh, he also affiliated with uh, with the Latter-day Saints, also considered himself to be a visionary, and was also immensely charismatic and you know, very good at compelling a crowd. And he would, you know, he would kind of break into contortions at times, um, you know, much in the same way that we often think about the initial Kirtland visionaries. You know, you think about section. Fifty of the Doctrine and Covenants, where you know Joseph Smith uh, tells the saints, "Listen, you can't allow false spirits to come among you, uh, and you know you you can't, uh, you know you have to test all the spirits." Well, he was uh, referring to Black Pete and Lucy. She had an affection for this kind of thing, so it really shouldn't surprise us that she would also have an affection for the you know, the kinds of things that William McCary did as well. Yeah, and you say that like he had a you know people thought it was strange. He kind of had this heavy female following um, that would follow him and she would quote white women would chase him about that's that's right that's right and Lucy was considered to be you know the head of the pack Um, she was considered to be the person who always quote got the power Uh, so she felt very comfortable in front of her crowd she felt very comfortable at at compelling a crowd, and you end up seeing her display these kinds of character attributes, you know, later on. After she's married to William McCary, she's the kind of woman who would be more than happy to talk back to Brigham Young. 
you know, when Brigham Young's trying, you know, trying to explain something to her, she just kind of mouths off to it. Uh, so I like her already. <laughs> she had some spine, and that's for sure. So, so tell us how this plays into Mormonism. So he he meets Lucy at Winter Quarters, right? Uh, yeah, he, he meets Lucy at, at Winter Quarters, and and he he's an endowed black man, right? Um, at this point, we know that he's been ordained to the priesthood. We don't have any evidence that he has, you know, received uh, any kinds of endowments. At least I'm sorry, sorry, knowledge. I meant an ordained, yeah, an ordained black man. So he's married to Lucy Stanton, and the Latter Day Saints become acquainted with him. And there, um, there are two basic responses. Uh, one is they're kind of charmed, they're amused. You know, they find his musical skill to be fun, to be um, enjoyable. It's it's what they would expect of a black stereotype, to be, to be quite frank. You know, the dancing black man is the kind of thing that a lot of northern whites were comfortable with. You know, they, they may have found slavery to be a, a, an awful institution, uh, but they had a whole series of stereotypes they, that they placed on, uh, on black people. But Well, and it seems like they used him in sort of his charismatic approach and when he'd take on these personas of like Christ or whatever to fuel their own perceived ideas of racism to um, highlight Christ's whiteness, as you say. Mm, and mm. um kind of used him as like a template to i don't know to for their biases if that makes any sense yes yes he did um you know when whenever he assumed these kinds of identities you know he he kind of mystified the latter day saints you know there there was a strong you know craving for the visionary experience you know within the latter day saint community at at this time and uh, that's one of the reasons that James Strang was so appealing to people is you know he did claim to have visions, and Brigham Young he he hadn't been much of a visionary at this point, and that's one of the reasons why you know he lost some people to the Strangite movement. Uh, so William McCary he's charming people, but at the same time, uh, the fact that he has a white wife is repulsive to a lot of people. Uh, a lot now, of people. now explain that to me. So does do people at this point understand that he be, because you know there was that one drop law, right? They there was a lot of there was a lot of racism in the country at the time, and so he would have been considered by that that law black. Yeah, and he is though he was ambiguous enough to where um, some people considered him to be a Lamanite, and other people thought he was black. Right. No one so was the stigma knew. because he was black, or because he was Lamanite, or the fact that he wasn't white? I mean, there are two different. I mean, there are different kinds of stigmas associated with you know. And we should make sure it's clear, like we're putting Lamanite in quotes here, but there are different stigmas associated with Lamanites than there are with blacks, right? With, with Lamanites, you know, Mormons, they had a mythology built into their, uh, into their thinking. And I use the word mythology not to suggest falsehood uh, as much as to suggest kind of a, a story that helps you frame the world, right? You have the Book of Mormon that explains who the Lamanites are and what their promise is and what their history is. So there was a stigma of being, you know, somewhat depraved and backward, but there's hope for you, at least according to Mormon theology. Uh, but with African Americans, there wasn't there wasn't that kind of theology built into the Mormon scriptures. Now, you know, this seems like a good place to to go with the Lamanite marriages because in 1831, after Joseph Smith arrived in Jackson County, Missouri. He had plans to preach to the Native Americans, right? And he receives a directive on intermarriage with the Indians, and it's William W. Phelps 
evidently claims that he writes this big sermon that Joseph gives from memory, where Joseph tells him to take on Lamanite concubines. It, so 30 years after you know, the initial settlement of Western Missouri in 1831, W.W. Phelps recalls Joseph Smith teaching them that white Latter-day Saint men should take Indian women to wife in order to actually whiten them. Uh, now understand that you know by this point you know, the the priest restriction had been a publicly known fact for about nine years, um, and you know it's around the same time that you know there's a there's a gentleman who was living in Payson. You know he wrote a letter to Brigham Young saying, "Hey, listen, I I have some African ancestry. I'm not sure what that means." I'm not sure, you know, I, I have a little bit, I'm not sure if that means I'm eligible for the priesthood or I'm not eligible for the priesthood, but it, it tells you there's a certain amount of racial anxiety in Utah at this time. So that, you know, it makes sense you know, that W.W. W. Phelps would say, okay, this is the reason that Joseph Smith told us to uh, to, to marry the, the local Indians. It's to purify them. Uh, you know, we do have letters from Ezra T. Booth who says, uh, you know, he says that, White Mormon men did, in fact, marry the local Indians, but he doesn't say anything about race. He says that it was uh, meant mostly for diplomatic reasons, you know, to assist with the settled territory and help them to navigate the, you know, the, the local Indian tribes. He did, he doesn't really speak to race, and and for that reason, some people have questioned whether Phelps was rem- remembering correctly, and Phelps was given to speculation on more than one occasion. Yeah, and here's a quote I want to read from the that he attrib- that Phelps attributes to Joseph Smith, he says, he says, Verily I say unto you the wisdom of man in his fallen state knoweth not the purposes and the privileges of my holy priesthood, but ye shall know when ye receive a fullness by receiving of the anointing. For it is my will that in time ye should take unto you wives of the Lamanites and Nephites, that their posterity might become white, delightsome, and just, for even now their females are more virtuous than the Gentiles. And And it goes on, and I think that this is, even I, I agree with you. I don't think that we can attribute this with a, some sort of surety to Joseph Smith. It's there's a lot of problems with it, but it was definitely a popular. I don't even know if you would call it doctrine or folk doctrine. I mean, we have Spencer W. Kimball with his missionary story about you know missionaries baptizing families and then they become whiter all of a sudden. Yeah, it was definitely lingering, and and I think it's really important to understand that this is how that. The, this quote that I read where they say that the women are more virtuous than the Gentiles is very interesting because as the saints would head West, this kind of contextualizes their relationship with the native Americans. They're more sympathetic to the American Indians than they are the American government. Yes. And, uh, and you know, that's one of many reasons that the Latter-day Saints were so scorned in Western Missouri uh, we do have contemporary evidence from locals who are, you know, they're not only associating uh, white Mormons with black people, they're also associating them you know, with Indians. And they're saying that Mormons are going to turn over this land to black people and Indians. And, you know, at the time, you know, that was just, I mean, that was nonsensical at best and absolutely, uh, you know, subversive and, and anarchical at worst. How, how dare you turn over this, you know, this fine land uh, to people like that? And it's noteworthy too that you know, in the late 1840s, you know, Brigham Young he corresponds, you know, with some people living in Provo who are having, you know, a few scuffles with local Indian tribes, and he said, you know what, you really need to go easy on them. 
Um, yeah, they're depraved. Yeah, they're backward. Yeah, they've got all these ridiculous notions. But, um, but guess what? It's born of their circumstances. So you really shouldn't expect anything better from them. And therefore, you know, you should not be, you know, following this eye for an eye kind of, kind of rule. You should be merciful and long suffering towards them. And I also want to point out an important thing. If Phelps was right and this, this, Address was given in 1831, and Joseph was suggesting polygamy with Native Americans. That is important because we don't have the plural marriage revelation coming out till you know, uh, allegedly the 1840s, and you know the whole kerfuffle with Fanny Alger happens around this time. Yes, yes, that's right. The the, the Fanny Alger incident happens within a few years. You know. Brian Hales and others have debated about exactly what year it took place. Uh, but regardless, the polygamy revelation, you know, in, in 18, uh, it was uh, recorded in 1842. It, you know, it supposedly had been in existence for a long time. And this was, you know, the first time that, you know, Joseph Smith actually, uh, you know, had it dictated. Um, so this idea of, you know, Lamanite, Plural marriage, yes, it is significant, and you know, if, if true, it would be in fact the very first instance of plural marriage uh, as sanctioned by Joseph Smith in Latter Day Saint history. Well, so let's get back to William McCary for a minute. So he comes in; he's this fascinating, almost mystical character to the saints. Yeah, he's mystical to some, but he's also repulsive and offensive to others because he's married to a to a white woman, and he he eventually, in, in March of 1847, goes in with Lucy by his side to speak about these matters with not only Brigham Young, but a number of the other church leaders. Uh, and it, it isn't it isn't a, an official core meeting, though. It's not like you know Brigham Young and and the twelve are sitting there. It's kind of a hodgepodge of, of society. I mean. You've got George Grant, who you know he had been a law enforcement official and, and that kind of thing, and then you have Doctor Robinson, who was obviously a medical doctor. You know he was there to examine, you know William McCary to you know look at his body and say, okay, you know, is, is he black? You know, what's what's his race exactly? And that was the purpose of the meeting. At least one of the purposes was to figure out who William McCary was, racially speaking. But one comment that William McCary makes to Brigham Young is he says, listen, some of your people aren't really treating me so well. In fact, they're saying, and I quote, there, go, there goes that old N-word and his white wife. And, uh, and this gives you a sense for at least some of the sentiments on the ground. I mean, there was a, there was real division there. Uh, you know, there were those who found him mystical, and then there were those who found him to be uh, just an example of a uh, uh, of an interracial marriage, which was taboo throughout the country. Joseph Smith himself had issued fi- issued fines to black men living in Nauvoo for trying to marry white women. So the Mormons, you know, they may have been you know anti-slavery or you know whatever, but interracial marriage—that's just a line that respectable people did not cross. Well, I think the story doesn't end there, though, right? I mean, it gets interesting for me because. McCary becomes a polygamist. That, that he does, but we, I actually I want to back up a little bit in the story uh, because this meeting that he has with Brigham Young is is pretty important. So he complains to Brigham Young about his treatment, and Brigham Young he, he makes a very interesting comment about race. 
Because by this point, you know, Brigham Young and others are basically believing that he's black. Uh, and Brigham Young says, Of all blood has God made man. And one of our best elders is an African, and he's referring to Walker Lewis living in Massachusetts. One of our best elders is an African. And we don't care about the color of your skin. This is all coming from Brigham Young in March of 1847. That's pretty progressive for Brigham it, Young. Yes, it's, it's remarkably progressive, especially considering the kinds of things that he's saying in, in the subsequent years. And he said, listen, you know, I know this is what the people are saying, but you just go and serve the Lord, do your best, and you know, it'll all work out. Well, what Brigham Young and others uh, didn't fully realize uh, was that William McCary had taken it upon himself to implement uh, polygamy for himself. He, he wasn't just married to Lucy Stanton, but he, was, uh, he would proceed to uh, marry himself to other white women in the Mormon community. Now, obviously, this, these marriages aren't going to be seen as legitimate, at least in the eyes of, of, of white Mormons, who are already assuming that interracial marriage is, at the very least, breaking the law of the land, and at the very worst, it's confirming every negative stereotype that they harbor about black people. It was you know, conventional wisdom amongst most respectable white Americans at that time that black people were, uh, were necessarily, inherently, uh, more sexually aggressive. They were just more sexual people uh, already. You know, they were sexual predators. So here you have William McCary coming along and saying, hey, I'm a polygamist, and now I'm going to consummate my ceiling with a number of women living in the Winter Quarters community. Uh, that, that smacked of all kinds of depravity. Yeah, and he was already, you know, considered charming and sort of aggressive when females were concerned. Yes, yes. I mean, he's already married to, you know, one of their you know, fair white daughters of Zion, and, and, you know, here he goes you know, sleeping with all these other women. Now, he did have his supporters, like the Stanton family. They supported him. There, there were others. Uh, so, to speak of him as, you know, just sweeping in here and then, you know, taking everybody off, that's, that's incorrect. Uh, there, there were those who supported him, and there, there were those who were violently opposed to him. Now, some of his biggest critics were Parley P. Pratt, and even yes. Orson Hyde, who baptizes him, starts to, to turn on him. Yes. Well, in Orson Hyde, he's an interesting figure as far as his views on race, because even well before you know, Orson Hyde baptized and ordained uh, William McCary, uh, Joseph Smith had chastised Orson Hyde for some racist remarks that he was saying. Now, let, let's not overstate Joseph Smith's progressivism. I mean, Joseph Smith, you know, he was not an abolitionist, e even if he, he was opposed to slavery later on in life. Uh, you know, he did believe that blacks suffered from a curse. Uh, but, but in his eyes, you know, slavery was, was definitely an evil. And, and Orson Hyde, he said, listen, Joseph, if we, if we oppose slavery, that's going to enable black people. That's going to, you know, cause them to rise up and eventually they're going to overwhelm us. And Joseph Smith said, actually, Orson, if you were in their shoes, you'd probably do the same thing. So the solution is we free them and then we segregate them. You know, we, we, we give them all the rights of Americans and then, you know, leave them to their, to themselves. So my impression of Orson Hyde is that he did have certain latent racist sensibilities, but he also held Joseph Smith in high regard. Zebedee Coltrane was kind of the same way. He said, okay, well, if Joseph Smith says so, Joseph Smith is, is okay with this. 
and he's okay with Elijah Abels. He's okay with okay. Then maybe I'm willing to entertain the idea of William McCary being a member of the priesthood body as well. Uh, but he was never totally committed to it. So the second William McCary proves exactly what he had been afraid of, you know, when he was discussing, uh, you know, this you know, the matter of race with Joseph Smith, he goes back to where he was. And he, you know, describes William McCary in all kinds of disparaging, you know, using all kinds of disparaging words, and you know, partly P. Pratt as well. And it's probably, I mean, it's in part due to the fact that you know, William McCary had, in fact, incited this kind of almost a mob mentality among a certain a certain sector of the Latter Day Saints. Yeah, and I'm going to read a quote from your book. It's kind of a long quote, sure. so bear with me, but. He, it reminds me of John C. Bennett in the way that he kind of took these, all of these, uh, Mormon principles and ideas and kind of ran with them. So, you say, quote, he had a number of women sealed to him. He had a home in which this ordinance was performed. His wife, Lucy Stanton, was in the room at the time of the performance. No others were admitted. The form of sealing was for the women to bed with him. In the daytime, as I am informed, three different times by which they were sealed to the fullest extent. McCary's philandering continued for a considerable length of time. Only when a Mrs. Howard learned of McCary's activities was the nature of the ritual revealed to the Springville branch. If Whipple's memory is accurate, it is possible that the the women knew nothing of the sexual aspect of the union beforehand and remained silent afterwards out of shame. And then you go on to say that, uh, you know, there's a hearing, um, that comes out of this. And, um, it, this was in 1847 in March. Yes. And sexual so, promiscuity was a, was not an element in this hearing. Y- yes. So, um, in, between March of, uh, March and April of 1847, you know, that's when all these activities are happening. And it, it's pretty clear that, you know, William McCary has left uh, winter quarters by April 25th because that's when Parley P. Pratt uh, you know, stands up and he says that, you know, William McCary um, is, in fact, you know, he's a descendant of Ham and therefore he is prohibited from holding the priesthood. Uh, now, the, the quotes that you were reading from Nelson Whipple, he was actually a member of a different branch. And as his, as his memory served him, all of this was happening actually after the events in winter, winter quarters. See, William McCary, he tended to follow the same pattern everywhere he went. He did it in Cincinnati, he did it in winter quarters, and he also did it in the Mormon settlement of Springville, which was not far from winter quarters. Uh, so, it, it's pretty fair to say that, you know, when probably Pratt's talk, uh, talking about these things, and Nelson Whipple's talking about these things, this is, this is a pattern. This is, systemic sexual promiscuity. Now, as far as sexual promiscuity coming up in, in the hearing, I, I just want to make sure I, uh, I know the passage you're referring to. Uh, what hearing is this specifically? Which, which one are you referencing? Okay, so the hearing I had was the March 1847 hearing. Okay, so that was, um, that was before any evidence of sexual promiscuity had surfaced. That was a meeting I was telling you about a, a little bit ago where, you know, Brigham Young says, hey, listen, um, you know, we don't care about your skin color. You know, it's you're welcome to the community. So by that point, we don't really have any any evidence that he was participating in these kinds of things. Uh, but over the next few weeks, after Brigham Young has left, after he's gone to Utah, then it's clear that William McCary felt, okay, you know, now that the cat's away, I'm going to play. And that's when he begins to, you know, 
participate in the plinger's practices. And so that's what I have. I have the April 1847 um, remarks when Parley P. Pratt chastised the saints at William at Winter Quarters, right? And I'm gonna right. can I read this quote from your book as well? Yes. It says, uh, Parley P. Pratt chastises the saints in Winter Quarters for following a new thing, quote, a new thing led by a, quote, black man who has got the blood of ham in him, which lineage was cursed as regards the priesthood, end quote. This sermon marked the first on-the-record connection between race and priesthood by a general authority. Pratt felt that McCary's movement had introduced disorder into the Mormon community at precisely the time when they needed to embrace the old thing, the gospel of Christ that was old in Adam's day. In context, it was an offhand remark buried in the middle of a call for the saints to unify against cattle raids by the Omaha tribe. But its brevity suggests that McCary's name had come up before. Orson Hyde took this criticism further. God sends, quote, delusive spirits and angels to, quote, gather out the tares. These, quote, enthusiastic spirits contaminated the, contaminated the body, for as they stay with us, we are the weaker. Men like McCary were, quote, mice drops mixed in with, quote, pure metal, white with pure metal. While the apostates who had followed James Strings were damned like gentlemen, McCary's followers would go in a meaner course. Yes, he declared with a flash of bitter indignation, they would follow a N-word prophet. At this point, the saints no longer saw McCary as entertaining Choctaw, but as a half-breed Indian Negro who styled himself a prophet. Can you explain the context with that? Yes, yeah, so you know, by this point it's clear that William Carey was something of a sexual predator. And based on what we know from Nelson Whipple's, you know, uh, memoirs, it, the women who had participated in this it was widely known. Everyone knew. You know, it was a very tight knit community and it began to fly that, you know, did you see, you know, that old N word over with, you know, sister so and so in you know in this building over here. And uh, he he left town quite quite rapidly, uh, at least from Springville. And uh, as as Nelson Whipple recalls, he went on a quote fast trot to Missouri unquote. And he and uh, Lucy actually end up settling in Jackson County of all places, uh, which I, I certainly think is noteworthy we know about Jackson County. Uh, so the comments that Parley P. Pratt and, uh, and Orson Hyde were making, uh, you know, b- both men, you know, they had their own histories with the black community, whereas Orson Hyde was you know, kind of willing to maybe experiment. He was kind of willing to go with the flow. So, okay, Joseph Smith said so. I'm willing to do it. Orson Hyde, I mean, excuse me, Parley P. Pratt, on the other hand, he had harbored a certain resentment against the black community ever since the Missouri period. And it, it's important to to recognize too that when the saints were settling in Jackson County and you know really Missouri uh, writ large, uh, the, the Missourians often racialized the Latter Day Saints. They uh, you know, they referred to them as being akin to uh, the Black community, and this wasn't just happening in Missouri; it was happening uh, in New York City as well. People called them the Black Mormons, so that played a role in the Latter-day Saints being expelled from the state. So, Parley P. Pratt, he's trying to explain all this to, to outside readers. He's trying to convince them that Latter-day Saints are good, respectable people. In fact, they're victims. And at one point, in a, you know, in a history that he wrote of the subject, he said, listen, there are no more than a half to a dozen black people in our community. Basically saying, we are a white church. 
So please recognize that, dear reader. We are a white church. So partly Pratt, he, he was more than ready and willing to say these kinds of things uh, in, in 1847. He was different from his brother Orson Pratt, as uh, Lejean Carruth has so uh, ably demonstrated to us. Orson Pratt, uh, he would later become a very articulate opponent of slavery in, in Utah, uh, even against Brigham Young. Uh, but that's, that's a different story entirely. Uh, so that's the context for these kinds of things, for these kinds of statements. Parley P. Pratt was uh, was finally, you know, he was fed up with with the black community, and you know, he saw the rage in people's eyes, and they were saying, "How dare you? How dare you let a black man like this, an old N-word, come into our community and sleep with our good, dear, pure white women?" And this do you, is what do you feel like his his story in particular kind of fueled the racism and the fear of interracial marriage as we moved further into the Utah period. Absolutely. All the evidence centers on the McCary incident as far as, you know, what what really pushed Brigham Young towards embracing the kind of hardline racist attitudes uh, that he would later express in the Utah period. Um, so in December of 1847, Brigham Young is back in winter quarters. And all of, you know this this William McCary incident it had scandalized everybody, and you know Orson Hyde others were telling Brigham Young about this, and Brigham Young was just he was stressed out. He he didn't know what to do because on the one hand he was doggedly loyal to Joseph Smith's vision, and he knew as well as anybody that Joseph Smith supported blacks holding the priesthood, or at least certain blacks like Elijah Abel's, uh, and you know he was willing to countenance it. You know, in, in the spirit of following Joseph Smith's footsteps. But now you have William McCary on your hands. And you've got people saying, listen, this is what a black person can do in our community. What are you going to do about it, Brigham? So, in the course of one statement, of one comment, he radically contradicts himself. And I, I point this out not to, not to say, well, look at Brigham Young contradicting himself, but rather to say, these are the kinds of thought currents that are flowing through his mind and the kinds of things that that people were dealing with. And I, I actually think it's it's a very important comment for, for explaining that. So I'm going to go ahead and read the comments that he made in some meeting minutes. Alright, so it's pointed out to him not only that William McCary you know, has been doing what he's been doing, but also that there had been a a black Latter-day Saint man in Massachusetts, the son of Walker Lewis, who had married a white woman. And they had just had a child. And they sent him over the edge. He said, and I quote, if they were far away from the Gentiles, they would all have to be killed. When they mingle, it is death to all. Okay, so, in, in fairness to Brigham Young, and I, this is such an awful statement that I, I don't want to go too far with this, it was, sadly and tragically, not at all uncommon for a black man to face his death for daring to sleep with a, a white woman. Uh, that was a common sentiment. And Brigham Young, he was, uh, he was absorbing that. And further notice, he says, when they mingle, it is death to all. Uh, so with this, he's tapping into a certain strand of scientific thought that was then popular, especially as a, uh, promoted by a scientist by the name of Josiah Knott, that when blacks and whites intermingled, uh, 
the offspring they produced were were sterile. Uh, and that's where they got the term mulatto from, uh, derived from the word mule, because, you know, mules cannot produce offspring. He goes on, if a black man and a white woman come to you and demand baptism, though, can you deny them? Wait a minute, so I thought you wanted to kill interracial couples, Brigham Young. Now he's saying that you have to baptize them. You Interesting. The conflict here that he's facing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the law is, though, he said, their seat shall not be amalgamated. Now, amalgamation, that was a, a 19th century term for you know, interracial unions and interracial sexuality. The law is their seat shall not be amalgamated. So now he's going back. This can't happen. Mulatos, he said, are like mules. They can't have children. But, he concluded, if they will be eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, they may have a place in the temple. Close quote. So, over the course of a few sentences, he flip-flops, flip-flops. Okay, they deserve to be killed. They deserve to be baptized. Um, the law is their seat shall not be amalgamated. But, if they're willing to not have children, then they can be sealed with temple sealings. Wow, I didn't know that. So, William McCary just sent Brigham Young's mind in all kinds of confused directions. So, so do you have any other thing to say about the fact of him being a polygamist? It seems, by all accounts, that he wasn't really sanctioned, but he felt, I guess, that the other brethren were doing it. There were other men, not just John C. Bennett and Joseph Smith, that were kind of acquiring wives at these times. Do you think he just well, got caught up in it? What do you think with that? I mean, at this time, uh, polygamy was something of an open secret in the Winter Quarters community. I mean, we have Patty Bartlett Sessions talking about her experiences being a, a plural wife. Time out. Did you hear that? That little bleep? No. Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't interrupting the podcast. All right, so I'm going to back up. Um, so at this point, polygamy was something of an open secret in the Winter Quarters community. Uh, you have uh, Patty Bartlett Sessions' journal where she talks quite a bit about her experiences being a plural wife in her Winter Quarters. Uh, and, you know, it's she really didn't love the experience like a lot of plural wives. Uh, you know, she was always fighting over baking soda with the other plural wife, and you know, she always missed her husband. Uh, but the point is that people knew about it. Uh, so my supposition is, you know, William McCary, he's already given to these kinds of things. In fact, they may have been what attracted him to the Mormon community to begin with. So he joins the Mormons thinking, okay, great, this will enable me to practice polygamy. Just what I've been looking for. Just the kind of people I've been looking for. Uh, turns out he was wrong. Uh, and, you know, as I said, he was basically chased out of town. And, uh, and you know, partly to be proud, he doesn't, you know, get to winter quarters until partway through the, uh, you know, the month of April. And, and while we don't have any specific documentation, you know, stating, you know, on, you know, the exact day that he committed these kinds of, of offenses, uh, the evidence from Nelson Whipple's, uh, Autobiography in Springville indicates that it wasn't just you know the leader telling the Latter Day Saints to, to go get him, but rather it was a kind of a populist action where you know, the rumor spread and everyone began to know where they should point the finger to single out the predator, and that is at William Carey. Yeah, I think that that this is a great case study in that, and I think this is an incredible story that helps provide so much context to not just 
interracial marriage, but like you said, the priesthood issue and the church's racism. This he he actually, you know, before starting this podcast, I didn't consider how he would have shaped the beliefs later on, but I, I think you're right, it's critical to understand. Yes, and you see, at the same time that William McCary is, is doing these kinds of things, Elijah Abel's He's living in Cincinnati. Both William McCary and Elijah Abels lived in Cincinnati at the same time. Not a lot of people recognize that. And uh, Elijah Abels, he had been faithfully serving as a, you know, as a seventy, and he had actually helped to crack down on dissent in, in the wake of Elizabeth's death. You know, there were some uh, Latter Day Saints who were you know supporting Sidney Rigdon and you know process they were beginning to bat on Brigham Young. Well, Elijah Abels, he was the first in line to say they need to be dis- they need to be excommunicated. And someone second, seconded the motion, and that was that. So, you know, you have two very different versions of black identity functioning within the Mormon community at this time. And on the one hand, you've got Elijah Abels, who's he's holding the line. He's the guardian of orthodoxy. And then you've got William McCary, who he, through his practice of polygamy, you know, he represents everything that that white Americans and or even white Mormons fear about black people at this time. Yeah, and it's interesting that this would be the one issue, you know, and especially because, you know, at this time, polygamy is not an openly practiced thing with within the saints, so it's considered extra scandalous, right? Yes, yes. Uh, you know, you can easily, you know, see the white, white Latter-day Saints remembering Missouri all too well. They heard what people were saying about them. In, in fact, when the... Uh, when the Saints were trying to, to vote in 1838, uh, at one of the, vo- uh, the, the voting booths, you know, the election worker says, you all don't have any more of a right to vote than the damned. So they felt the sting of being racialized. And here you have this black man coming in and making them look bad yet again. It was ghosts of Missouri all over. Well, I think, uh, I think I would point everyone to your book because it really goes into this in depth. And so I'm going to go ahead and link to that. So if you haven't picked that up, I would encourage you to do that. And Russell, thanks so much for coming on. It's always my pleasure. And, uh, thank everyone for listening again to the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. Uh, and, uh, we'll see you next week.